Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. Then man's chief purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And to that we would say a hearty amen. And yet, how do we pursue that glory? How do we pursue that sense of excellence? And how do we enjoy Him forever? How we answer that shapes, no doubt, what we are and how we do it. And perhaps just as importantly, what we do not do. And from that, we constructed a purpose statement, something that you'll probably hear more about in the coming months, but that is to shape our, our mission, both individually as well as corporately. And it all comes back to what is the church. And Peter tells us fundamentally in this passage, what is the church? And has been in the entirety of chapter 2 thus far. And what he's saying is the church is not a building, not in the sense of bricks and mortar. It's not a place of isolation, not a museum, not a theater, not a social hub. But he's saying the church is the blood-bought people of God, called by him to gather together, as he says here, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is the people, you and me. And so if you've missed that point the last several weeks, let me repeat it to you again. The church is the people of God. And God is building his church, which doesn't mean that he's building this church on this corner and that church on that corner. No, he is building up you and me together, collectively. He is instructing, he's edifying, he's encouraging, he's equipping us to do his work on the earth. God has ordained the means of his church to advance his kingdom and cause throughout the world. And so, to ask, what is the church? Is really to ask, what are we, both individually and collectively? What are we in Christ? And how does that identity shape that which we are called to do? I want to look at those two points clearly this morning. First, our great identity the great identity of the church, and second, the great purpose of the church. First, the great identity of the church. Those that Peter was writing to are going through somewhat of an identity crisis. As we have seen, they are believers, both Jews and Gentiles. 
But for the Jews, they are those that are living outside of the land of Israel, which makes them outsiders with their own people, as well as foreigners in the land in which they now live. And even for the Gentiles that were perhaps native to these areas that Paul addresses this letter to, they, in a sense, are no longer native. They are no longer Gentiles, in the sense that they do not engage in that which the Gentiles engage in. Peter says to them in chapter 1, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, rather As he who called you is holy, so be holy in all of your conducts. And that holiness sets them apart, makes them different. And so for both the Jews and for the Gentiles, they no longer fit in the current culture in which they live. And it's not without its effects, as we've been seeing, that they are suffering persecution as a result. Peter even calls them, Exiles, sojourners, people without a home. As a result, they are people, in a sense, without an identity. A bit of who they are is lacking, no doubt. And so Peter wants to build them up, wants to restore some of that dignity, wants to demonstrate that Their identity was never in those things anyway. He wants to give them their true identity in Christ. In fact, in verse 7, just a few verses before our passage, he says, So there is honor for those of you who believe. Notice, there is honor for you who believe. Could you imagine saying that to people that are undergoing persecution? They might not think they are being honored. They might be thinking that they've been left, that they've been forsaken, that they've been forgotten. But honored? No, that doesn't seem to fit. And some of you can relate to those experiences. Some of you might have come to this country from another country or from another culture. You've made your way to this land And we are glad that you are here. We're glad that America is a land of opportunities. And we hope that it will always be that way. And yet, we understand that coming to a new place doesn't make everything easy. That those opportunities sometimes aren't always plentiful. Especially for those that are deemed outsiders. But for many of us who have grown up here, most Americans, we do not lack identity. Our problem is we identify in the wrong things. We find our worth in the things of this world, the things that are fading, the things that are fleeting, rather in the things that are eternal, the things of the Lord. And so I think Peter addresses this both to those that lack identity as well as those that find their identity in far lesser things. And he says, you need to focus on this. You need to focus on what is your great identity in Christ. And he gives four declarative statements. 
for you are this. Declaring the truth of who we are. And these are truly glorious statements. Let us take a look at each one of these. He begins by saying, you are a chosen race. You are chosen by God. You are the chosen people of God. So we saw last week, Peter is not afraid of this doctrine of election. In fact, it's the first word to them in this letter, is it not? In chapter 1, verse 1, after introducing himself, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect. He addresses them as the elect. And he does so here as well, that you are a chosen people, a chosen race. But before one begins to think too highly of being chosen, one must remember that that choice was not based on something inherent in the one chosen. Rather, it's only inherent in the one who has chose, God Almighty. That this was true for Israel, was it not? In the Old Testament, as God says to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. God says to them, you weren't the greatest, you weren't the best. So don't think that you were. And yet, somehow Israel forgot that. They began to think that they were elite because they were the chosen. Because they were the Jews, they looked down upon everybody else as if that was something inherent in them. No, it was the love of God that chose them. It was the grace of God. It was the mercy of God. And that is true in the New Testament. It is true of us as much as it was of Israel, even as we say, yes, we are the chosen people, the chosen race. Remember what Paul says to the Corinthians. God chose the foolish. God chose the weak. God chose the low. God chose the despised. God chose the things that were not. So just in case you thought you were cut above the rest, Paul says, no, think again. Rather, God chose the foolish, the weak, and the low, so that all the glory would be to God and none to us. And yet, nevertheless, we are the recipients. We are the beneficiaries. We are the the passive ones, and yet the ones that receive all the blessings of God given to them. So that does not diminish this title that we are the chosen of God but may that title be given back to God that all the glory would be given to him of his grace and his mercy the mercy of the one who chooses and thank God that we can be a part of the chosen you are the chosen race he goes on to say you are a royal priesthood Not only are you the beneficiaries of his election, but you are promoted to the highest spiritual office. Christ is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He is the fulfillment of all of them, but through him we now become a kingdom of priests. 
We no longer need a priestly mediator. We no longer need someone that represents us before the Almighty God, that makes sacrifices on our behalf. No, we can go directly to God. We can go right now to the very throne room of God, to the very spiritual holy of holies, that we can lay our petitions at His feet. That is an improvement. That is something that is greater than the old covenant that is given to us as new covenant believers, that we have the priesthood of all believers, that we are the royal priesthood, as Peter says. We have no spiritual hierarchy in the new covenant. No, there is all equal and level ground. As a pastor, I'm not higher than you. I don't have greater access. I don't have greater privilege than you because of what Christ has done for you. That you can come and worship God. Come into His very presence. Be able to have that access that only the high priest and that of once a year was able to be given in the Old Covenant. No, we are the royal priesthood. As he says here, he goes on to say, you are a holy nation. Again, Peter is saying to these exiles, to those that are in a sense a nationless people. No, you are a nation. You're a new nation in Christ. You're a new people. You are identified by your identity in the church, your identity with Christ. And that is greater than any other nation that we belong to. I've had the privilege of being able to travel and go to other nations and there work with believers from around the world. Perhaps you have too. People that look very different from me. I remember one time traveling to Africa and we got to go to a very remote region within Africa, West Africa. And many of those people there were not used to seeing white people let alone six-foot-three ones with red hair. And so little children would come up and rub my arm hairs. Not sure if I came from America or from outer space. But in all of those places, I've been with and met with believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and though they look different, and though they speak oftentimes a different language, There was a sense of a connection with them. More so than even the connection that I have with those that live in my very own neighborhood. Those of my very own fellow countrymen. And I think Peter would say, well, because there is a greater connection with them. There is a greater bond That together you are becoming a part of a different nation, a holy nation because of Christ. And that nation, namely the church, has no borders. You understand that right. That God elects from the north, the south, the east, and the west, every tongue and tribe and nations. As Habakkuk 2.14 says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the earth, that we should pray towards those ends, that all the earth 
would have the knowledge of God. And together, God would gather us in as that holy nation. And that is the only nation on earth that is promised to survive until the coming again of Christ. That nation, that is the church, will never be overcome, will never be defeated. But that nation is the only nation that will stand the test of time. That nation was in place long before America. And it might be there long after as well, as long as the Lord tarries. Peter says, you are a holy nation. He goes on to say, you are a people for his own possession. Perhaps you've gone into someone's home and they want to show you a prized possession. They might say, this is my pride and joy. Well, the scriptures call the church his pride and joy. The church is his bride, the apple of his eyes, the prized possession, the trophy in a sense of his grace. That God the Father gave his son to the church. And at the very end of time, when he comes back again, when he separates the sheep from the goats, Christ will then present the church back to the Father. That which he has bought, that which he has redeemed, that which he has saved, that which has been lost has now been found. That which he has gained for all of the suffering in which he endured in this life. That reason for which he became incarnate was so to redeem a people, so to redeem the church, a people for his own possession. Isaiah 53 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall look and be satisfied. What was it that allowed Christ to endure all the anguishes of the cross? It was that he was looking off and seeing the redemption of his people. Seeing that which his blood was purchasing. That's how we should see the church, a people for his own possession. These four identities mark us out. These are the identity of the church. They mark us out both individually as well as corporately. That the individual parts make up the whole and the whole by its parts. It's the, the one and the many. Just as if you would go into a, a beautiful building, a beautiful cathedral, you probably wouldn't just look at one brick and say, oh, look at how wondrous and glorious this one brick is. And oh, look at that brick over there. It's not how we look at things. But we understand that each individual parts makes up the collective beauty. And that is the same sense here with the church that each and every one of you is fundamental to the whole. And each and every one of you makes up the beauty of the whole. Each of us can be described with those adjectives that we are chosen, that we are royal, that we are holy, that we are his own possession. But it's only collectively as we come together that we can be a race, that we can be a priesthood, that we can be a nation, that we can be a people. 
And so you see how those individual and collective parts come together here to make us the chosen race, to make us the royal priesthood, to make us the holy nation, the people for his own possession. All of these are titles that were given to Israel in the Old Testament. They belonged to them alone because God had made a covenant with them. But this verse demonstrates that the church is the new Israel. That God extends his covenant into the New Testament. And he includes Gentiles as well. Praise God, which is most of us. As his covenant goes out to all the nations. And we become a new nation, a new people. And that is why, as I said earlier, we don't chiefly designate ourselves as Americans. And that is why some of you ask, why don't we do patriotic services? Fourth of July, memorial. Why is it that we don't endorse certain candidates from this pulpit? It's not that we are not thankful to be Americans. We are. It's not that we shouldn't be good citizens and residents. We should. It's not that we should pray for the blessing of America. No, we do. But our identity is far greater than being Americans. It's also why we don't chiefly designate ourselves as being a part of this race or that race. Because we're part of a different race. We're part of a holy race. And those things should mean more to me than the color of my skin or the color of the skin of your brother or sister in Christ. And any of you that would elevate those other things don't understand their true identity in Christ. Their new and greater identity. It's those identities that unite us. That gather us together. And it's those identities that, that spur us on. Second then to our Our great purpose. The great purpose of the church. What are we called to do? In the light of who we are as the church, what are we called to do? Well, Peter tells us right there. He says that we are these things so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Our greatest task, our most fundamental task as the church is to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. In other words, it is to worship God. And we do this every day as individuals. We do this as families, as we gather together. But there is no worship like the worship of the church. There is no worship like the worship of the church on the Lord's day. As we gather together as the corporate people of God, worshiping God, their Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power and enabling of the Holy Spirit, there is nothing greater on this side of heaven. There's no greater privilege than that, the privilege of gathering together as the church. And we need to be reminded of that. Too often, I think, we think of of worship and going to church that we we kind of in a sense put life on hold we call a time out 
And we pause and, and we put our work and our other activities and, and our entertainments and, and we come and, and we have this worship time. We have this Jesus and me time. And then afterwards we kind of go back to life. We go back to reality. That's a wrong perspective on life. Do you realize that when we gather together, this is reality in its greatest form? That this is life as it was meant to be? That this is exactly what God created us to do? To come before Him? To worship at His feet? No, the the world and the sin... And, and the devil has skewed life out there, but life here is in its proper perspective. It's here that we have our worldview reoriented again as it should, as everything is perfectly aligned as the people of God come before the God that has redeemed them to worship Him. It is the purpose for which we have been redeemed. And therefore, worship must become our all-consuming passion to be worshipers, to be proclaimers of his excellencies, as he says here. That you don't have to be a preacher to be a proclaimer. All of your life is a proclamation. All of your life should be proclaiming your new identity in Christ. Again, Think about those adjectives that Paul mentions here. Think about meditating upon those this week. Taking the day and and, and meditating on the fact that, that God has chosen you. The fact that you are royal, that you're a part of the royal family, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The fact that he's called you to be holy. The fact that he's called you to be his own possessions. How would that change your life and your perspective this week? And that which you are called to do and go about doing. I think it would naturally lead us to praise and worship. And naturally lead us to proclaim his excellencies called to be proclaimers, called to be worshipers, not only individually again, but collectively as the church, that worship is the hub, worship is the center of all that we do. But that doesn't mean that we're just to stay in our little holy huddle, so to speak. This should be the motive and incentives for everything else that we're called to do as a church. For example, missions and evangelism. I think everyone here would say that's a part of the mission of the church. But as John Stott says, the highest missionary motive is neither obedience to the Great Commission, as important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, but rather, as he says, zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. And for others to join in glorifying him. You hear what he's saying? Even in worship, even in missions and evangelism, our our purpose is worship. Is to make more worshipers, to make more proclaimers. For others to join in this great and grand purpose. John Piper has this book 
about missions. And the title of it is, Let the Nations Be Glad. And it comes from Psalm 67, which says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Notice what that psalm is saying is that the nations will be glad when they enter into that great praise of their God. And they will not have joy until they understand that is their purpose. John 4, Jesus says the same thing to the the woman uh, at the well, the Samaritan woman. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking, listen to that, the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Worship is the great purpose of the church. It's that which we will be doing for all of eternity. You want a taste of the new heavens and the new earth? You have it every week, every Lord's Day. As we gather together with this small crowd, small in comparison to what that great church, that new and holy nation will be like in the day of redemption, in the day of the new heavens and the new earth. But until then, we have this worship here as gathered saints, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Psalm 84 says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose hearts are the highways to Zion. They go from strength to strength until each one appears before God in Zion. You should see each Lord's Day as going from strength to strength, like going from one well to another well as you travel through the deserts, all until you appear before God in Zion. This morning as we go to the table, there's just one application that I want to make of this. As we told you earlier, that this is the time that we enter into that officer nomination. This text, I think, would inform those that we are looking for. And we're not looking for those that uh, have wonderful business acumen, that we're not looking for those that have large business accounts or bank accounts. We're not looking for those that can necessarily balance a spreadsheet. We are looking for those that understand their great purpose in life is to be a worshiper, to be a proclaimer of God, that understand that the office of elder and deacon is a spiritual office. And that is not only true just of officers, but it's true of every heads of any ministry, that they understand that they're a part of that, that they're trying to build up, to edify, to equip you to be greater worshipers in all that you do, to be greater proclaimers of Christ, to build you up in your identity in Christ, to keep the main purpose the main purpose which is to worship and to glorify God. Because that is the great purpose of the church. I'll close with this. Donald Trump, as you know, ran on the slogan, Make America Great Again. And I spared you from entitling this sermon, Make the Church Great Again. Because the reality is the church has always been great. It's just we who have forgotten or missed its greatness. 
And it's not because we're great, is it? Far from it. But it's because God is great. It's great because of who Christ is. Because Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is great. And as a result, he has made the church great in him. So may we not forget who we are in him. That we are the chosen race, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. Let us, therefore, live and worship accordingly in the light of who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your grace and mercy. Lord, these things are almost too good, too glorious, too high for our thoughts to even entertain that which you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would even be considered great because of the greatness of Christ. But that is truly what we have received because of him. And Lord, as a result, may it shape that way that we live, that way that we go about our business, and especially the way that we go about as we gather together from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. Lord, may we be true worshipers and proclaimers. May we do so now even as we approach this table. And as we do so, Lord, we silently confess our sins to you.